So if they'll get my pictures up for today. So we're beginning a series today in the book of Esther. And we're going to be here for three weeks. We're going to take a two-week break. And then we're going to come back to it on December 18th because there's so many... I did. There's so many tie-ins. There's so many tie-ins between Esther and Jesus. There's so many ways that Esther points to Jesus. And I'm going to highlight some of those things today. Uh, but Esther is, in my opinion, an amazing book. It's an underrated book. And so I want to teach on this book, from this book, over the next several weeks. In 1998, uh, things hit the fan for then-President Bill Clinton. Some, some of you are looking at the picture and like, well, I want to go too. <laughs> I want to go too. So in 1998, things hit the fan for then President Bill Clinton. News broke that he had been having an affair with a 24-year-old intern, Monica Lewinsky. And I don't care about the Democrat thing, the Republican thing, but there was a thing going on between the president and an intern that a lot of people at the time were like, well, that's inappropriate. That's wrong. And if any of us had been the parents of Monica Lewinsky, even if our daughter had come home and said, Mom, Dad, I'm so sorry. I regret what I did. I just want you to know I agreed. I'm just as much as fault as he is. We would have felt as her parents that she had been exploited in some way, right? Because the President of the United States is the most powerful person, the most powerful man in the United States of America. And so there would have been part of us as parents that would have felt that use or abuse of power. Now, this kind of thing isn't limited to presidents of the United States. And Bill Clinton's not the first. He's probably not going to be the last. There's actually a couple of comedians of late, Louis C.K., who apparently would lock the door and do the most despicable things behind the locked door. And then Bill Cosby, who would put quaaludes in women's drinks and then do what he wanted to do with those women. Uh, it's not just America either, right? So if you pan out to different parts of the world, there's Kim Jong-il, the old leader of North Korea. Um, he actually would have his military kidnap women for him, some of whom were North Korean movie stars, and they were placed in a harem where he could do what he wanted. Um, it's estimated that he fathered at least nine children this way through the women who were kept secretly in his harem. Now, this kind of atrocious behavior isn't limited to presidents or kings or comedians. More than one professional intern working at a bank or a school or someplace like that has been abused or exploited by somebody in power. Um, and... There have been Hollywood actors and actresses that when they get a little older, maybe they're 40 or 50 years old, they start to tell stories about how a director or a producer wanted them to do something in order to get a part. And so can we all agree, can we all agree that people in power can and have abused that power through sexually exploiting other people? Can we agree that this happens? Yeah. Yeah, and this abuse of power isn't limited to sex. So in our community and in places like New York and California, there are developers of commercial developers, residential developers who partner with government, and then they come in and they claim eminent domain over a piece of property so that 
the developers can make a lot of money, the city can make some money, and some other people are just out of a home or out of a place. There is more than one college or university where a professor has been sat down by the dean and told, look, you've got four players in your class this semester, and these players are all going to get a B. Isn't that right, professor? Wink, wink, nod, nod. You're up for tenure this year. You know that, right? Right? So people use and abuse power the way people use and abuse power. And, and Team America's like everywhere else in the world, and just like the places that we read about in history and in, the, and in the Bible, which leads me to the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was this amazing place of Mesopotamia, Egypt's Nile Valley, and India's Indus region. And all of that was united under Cyrus the Great. And that's the setting of the account that we get of Hadassah, or as we know her, Esther. And so I, I want to read a little bit of scripture, and I want to retell what happened to her that's recorded in the book that bears her name. And so this is Esther chapter 1, and it's the first few verses. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a great banquet for all of his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. So King Xerxes, whose real name was Kashyar Shah, Kashyar Shah, is a man who has arrived. Can we agree? He's got it all. And at this moment in world history, he is the most powerful person in the world. And he takes 180 days to parade his wealth in front of his military officers and Persian noble families, okay? And it continues, that's verses five and following. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. This banquet lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains, and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons and silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of poffer, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets and many designs, of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. I recently read about a Swedish business tycoon uh, Natalie Nauf, and Natalie Nauf loves her dog. She loves her dog so much that she commissioned a special dog collar to be made for Woofy, bearing diamonds and emeralds. The estimated cost of this necklace was $785,000. Roof! In this passage, those same kind of stones are inlaid on the floor because the king wants the floor to sparkle every now and then, 
right? So you and I, when we're reading this and hearing this, we're supposed to be impressed. We're supposed to think, wow, holy cow, who has that kind of stuff? Toward the end of the feast, King Xerxes is drunk, and he commands his servants to go get his wife. That's verses 10 and 11. On the seventh day of the feast, when the King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, meaning he was drunk, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, I'm not going to read their names, to bring Queen to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. So he's drunk. He sends his servants to go get his wife. It's the last day of the feast, and the king wants all of these military officers and noble families to look at her and to come to the conclusion, wow, not only does he have everything, he has the most beautiful woman in the world. And make no mistake, the language here isn't a language of relationship or egalitarianism. He owns her. She's his property. And he's displaying her every bit as much as he's displaying these other things that supposedly he owns, right? Only Vashti doesn't come. That's the kicker. That's the moment of surprise. Esther chapter 1, verse 12. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused. This is where we all go, oh, she refused. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. What? He has paraded his wealth and splendor for 186 days. And now, with Vashti's refusal, the only thing that anyone will ever remember from this grand spectacle is what? She said no. She didn't come. She was summoned, and she said, uh-uh. That's the only thing they'll talk about. That's the only thing they'll remember. So then something funny and strange happens. Xerxes' advisors blow it all out of the proportion, and they, they do this well, you know, if the, if, the, if the queen doesn't obey the command of her husband, we'll have women all throughout our empire, and they won't obey their husbands. We must issue an edict. We must make a law. And so they, they hurry and scurry, and they get edicts, and they get the king to make a law banishing Vashti as queen. Problem solved. Now all the women will be doing the things that they should be doing, right, and saying, yes, sir. And so Xerxes, even though he's the most powerful man in the world, he cannot make his wife do anything, can he? He can bribe, beg, plead, cajole, threaten, punish, but he's powerless to bend the will of another human being. He has limits to his power. Interesting side note, many historians believe it was after this celebration that Xerxes decided to go to war with the Greeks. And in that war, there was a battle. They made a movie out of it. The 300, Xerxes got his butt kicked. He got his army handed to him. And after two years, he came back to Susa, humiliated and defeated. Not to worry, his advisors come up with something new. And that's in chapter two. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what he had done and the decree he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, 
Let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they're given all the beauty treatments. And after that, the young woman, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. Ha, 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 ha. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. This isn't a beauty pageant. We're grown-ups in the room today. Can, let's just talk about it for what it is. This isn't a beauty, beauty pageant. This is kidnapping and sexual exploitation. This is what's going on. Officers of the king can enter any home that they choose, take any woman they want, and take that woman off to the harem. And that woman will be given treatments to make her more beautiful according to the standard of the day. And that woman will also be trained by other women in the harem about how to sexually please a man, namely the king. And that's what's going on. And one of the women chosen is a young Jewish woman named Esther. Okay? And that's where we pick it up. Verse 5 and following. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. It's a lot of history here. This man had had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her mother and father died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Forty years before all of this takes place, another king, King Cyrus, had issued a decree saying, okay, look, all you Jews that are here in, you know, what was Babylon... You want to go home, go home. And a bunch of them did. And that's where we get the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And what happened to them is recorded in those books of the Old Testament. But some Jews, some Jews stayed in Persia. They stayed in Susa, in places in and around Persia, because they were doing just fine, thank you very much. They were making a go of things. They were making a living. And Mordecai's family was one of those families that had remained behind in Susa. Mordecai had no power, no clout, and neither does the orphan girl that he's brought in to raise as his own. Esther is the only person in this book to have two names. And I had an obstinate college professor named Leland Riken. So he was a professor of literature. And he said that Esther's two names is a big literary device to cue you in on the fact that she's got a foot in two different worlds, and she's struggling between two different identities. Is she the Jewish girl, the daughter of God's people, heir of the covenant and all that other stuff, or is she just another pretty face in a culture that values beauty? Who is she? And so the two names speak to this struggle that Esther faces. And so Esther's like one of several women taken by the king's officers in his search of the next queen. And like the other young women taken, she doesn't have very good options. 
Verse 10 tells us, Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. So acting on Mordecai's advice, Esther conceals her nationality. She conceals her faith. She submits to the beauty treatments, the food, the specialized training. And again, this isn't just a beauty pageant, okay? So verse 16 and following tells us what happens. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces, provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. All Esther's trying to do is, is make the best out of a horrible situation. And her choices, in some ways, are, are non-choices. Will she refuse the king's food, which is ceremonial, ceremonially unclean? What's probably going to happen to her? Death. The night she's taken to the king, does she say to him, now look, I haven't told anyone this, but I'm part of a covenant of God's people. And, I'm, and, and sex and sexual intercourse, that's something for the sanctity of marriage. And, and by the way, I can't be your wife because you're an uncircumcised man. So unless you're willing to consider that at your current age, we can't get together. Like, does she say that and also go to death? Like, she doesn't have very good options. She's an exploited young woman with no good options. But at the same time, she conceals her faith and does some other things. So she's maybe not the perfect character person that we'd like to see. Um, I don't think any of us who are parents would look to the book of Esther as kind of a blueprint to sit down with our daughters and talk about how they should in engage their romantic pursuits. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we wouldn't do that. But in this way, Esther is just like everyone else we read in the Bible. She's just like Abraham. Oh, Sarah, yeah, totally my sister. Whatever needs to happen can happen. I'm okay with that. David, who takes another man's wife and then kills him. <laughs> who does that? A man after God's own heart. <laughs> right? So in this way, Esther is not unlike all of the people that we read about in the Bible, and let's be honest, not unlike you and me with our own failings and shortcomings and family issues that we have that dog us. So I want to ask a couple of questions in light of all of this. Who or what seems powerful to you in the world in which we live? So just like Esther and Mordecai, we find ourselves living in a culture that values, ironically, power, beauty, success, <laughs> status. So what seems powerful to you in the world in which we live? And then secondly, when and why have you felt weak or powerless as a Christian? When and why have you felt weak or powerless as a Christian. So I have some ways that I, I want to take this point home, and it's not necessarily as practical as always, but I want to let the book of Esther speak to us. I want to suggest to you that to live in America today is to live as an exile. 
So Mordecai and Esther, they're not Persians, are they? They're Jews. They've been dislocated. They were dislodged however many years earlier in the Babylonian conquest. Persian culture is not their culture. Persian ways are not supposed to be their ways. And so just like Mordecai and Esther, we're strangers and foreigners. We don't belong to the kingdom that uses power to exploit others. We belong to the kingdom where the last shall be first, where the orphans and widows, the marginalized, the weak and the vulnerable members of society are cared for and protected. That means that just like Esther, we're going to struggle with our identity. Am I somebody or am I valuable because I'm powerful, because I'm strong, because I'm successful, because I'm beautiful, because I'm accomplished, because I'm well-connected, and because, thank goodness almighty, at least 15 people liked my post today. <laughs> okay? And then the second thing is the world's power structures and valuables are laughable and ironic. We're supposed to look at what King Xerxes and his officials do and go, ha, 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 like you can control all the women or all the people in your kingdom. Ha, 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 silly people. Tricks are for kids, right? We're supposed to laugh. In our own culture, we have some laughable things. We value youth and beauty to a degree that's silly. It causes people who have to for a job, be in front of a camera, do the most horrible things to their bodies just to stay looking young. Just this week, Melissa Gilbert made the news again. Melissa Gilbert was the young kid in Little House on the Prairie. Now she's the ripe old age of 58, an aging star. <laughs> but she came out and she said, you know what? I'm done with the Botox. I'm not doing the surgeries. I'm letting my hair go gray. I'm embracing the wrinkles. I'm just going to age because it's what happens to humans that don't die, <laughs> they age, okay? Our society has some crazy things about it that are laughable and ironic. The last and most important thing is this, God keeps his promises even when we don't see them. God keeps his promises even when we don't see them. Esther is unique among all the books of the Bible because God's not mentioned by name once. In the book of Esther, there's not a single miracle there's a dramatic reversal of fortune, but there's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no frogs. There's no thunderclap. There's no miracles. And yet, God is at work. God is at work behind the scenes. Part of the whole book of Esther is pointing out that even though you don't think it's happening, God's at work. Okay? In the book of Esther, uh, we have, we have a king calling for his bride to come to a feast. Where else have we heard of a king calling for his bride to come to a feast? Hmm. Right? Jesus, like Xerxes, he's a king. He doesn't banish his bride. He doesn't try to get another bride. <laughs> Jesus doesn't stay in his citadel castle and have other people do what needs to be done. What does Jesus do? He leaves heaven, he becomes human, and he calls out his bride himself. In fact, he lays down his life for his bride. Uh, and there's a beautiful promise in, in Isaiah. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat 
There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He'll remove forever all inserts, insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. Jesus is a better king. Esther is pointing to this better king who is coming. In the book of Esther, we see a woman who has very hard choices to make. And I don't blame Esther for the choices that she makes. But her struggle points to someone else who will have a struggle. Jesus is taken to a mountain, a very high mountain by the devil. And the devil says, look, here's all the nations of the world. All you have to do is bend a knee, worship me, and it's it. Boom. You don't even need God to show up. So on the one hand, on the one hand, Jesus can get more glory than any human being has ever had, or he can get more suffering than any human being has ever endured for putting God first. Sounds like a non-choice to me, and yet we know what Jesus chose, don't we? We have a cross in this room. Jesus went to the cross. He didn't choose compromise, and that choice led him to suffering and death, but at just the right moment, God shows up, and on the third day, God raises Jesus from the dead and gives him a name above every name. Esther, like so many other things in the Old Testament, point to Jesus. And here's where I want to end today. God makes a better hero. I love sometimes when we pastors, we like to talk about the heroes of the faith. And it's true, they are. But in the Bible, there's one hero, God. God's a better hero than Mordecai or Esther. God's a better hero than Abraham or David or Rahab. God's a better hero than Max Vanderpool <laughs> or Brian Hull or Diane Stein or Don Tippy or Rita Setnis. God's a better hero because God will keep his promises. So I want to push the pause button there, and we'll come back to Esther next week. Uh, but I'm going to invite our musicians to come up. And we're going to learn a new song today. Uh, and as they're getting in place, I want to pray for us. Father, I got to admit that there's a part of me that feels really comfortable in America. Like, America's awesome in so many ways. And yet, I look at Esther, I look at the language of Peter and Paul, and I'm faced with the fact that my home is not this world. I'm just passing through. Like the old hymn, I'm a pilgrim on my way. Father, we acknowledge that your kingdom is better than all the kingdoms of the world. This upside-down kingdom where the last shall be first, where light you get life through death, where the person who's in charge of everything serves. It is a beautiful kingdom. It's the way things should be. So, Father, once again, we ask that your kingdom will come, your will will be done in our lives, in our relationships with our husbands and wives, in our children and our parents, in our homes, where we go to work and study. And that, like Esther, like Abraham, like all these other people, that we will point to Jesus with our life, because we trust you no matter what. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.